Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Superheroes don't always wear capes. Sometimes it's a red suit on Christmas, which is exactly what these brave bearded Santas of color confronted racist threats by daring to do so at Southern stores and malls in North Carolina. Here to talk about that and more is African-American photographer Stafford Braxton and his organization, Santa's Just Like Me, the subject of the documentary up for an Oscar this year, American Santa. First, some scenes from the film, then Stafford Braxton. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Get that first ho, ho, ho out and warm the voice up a little bit. I've never been a Santa in a mall before, so this is my first time being a, a mall Santa. As far as I know, this is the first time they've had a black Santa here at the mall. They're not trying to hide it. We had the one mother, her daughter wanted to come see Santa because all the little child saw was the white beard and the red suit, and that was Santa Claus to them. And the mother grabbed the child and said, we don't like that kind, and walked away. Santa, I really want my slaves back. Yes, how are you doing? Well, hello and welcome to our show. Okay. <laughs> All right, Prairie. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be a guest. Okay. Now, could you say a little about yourself and what led you to create your organization, Santa's Just Like Me? Sure. Um, I am, one of my, my trades is I'm a professional photographer. I've been doing professional photography for over 40-some years, and so I moved from Virginia uh, to North Carolina, little kind of career change. At the time, I was actually a, a teacher. I taught elementary school in actually 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And we moved to North Carolina in 2011, and I was thinking, well, maybe I can, you know, reestablish my photography business at, uh, in North Carolina, as I did in Virginia, because I had a very established clientele there. And um, so I looked in the, in the news, not in the news book. I can tell you how old I am. I'm looking in the newspaper. I was looking through Craigslist, is what I meant to say. And I came across an ad for a photographer working with Santa at the mall. And I figured, I thought, hey, what a great way to get out into the public and maybe meet some people that need my services. Yeah, so I started photographing the traditional Santa at a mall, one of North Carolina's oldest malls. And as I was working there, people would constantly come and ask if we were going to have a Santa of color available for minority families. And I jokingly told them, you know, they're not going to allow that here. And little did I know I was speaking prophetically. Um, so I'm a bold kind of individual. So I went to the mall and I said, hey, this is what people are asking for. You know, what, what can we do? And they was like, uh, oh, that was a, that's a good idea. But that's where they left it. And so, to me, it was the proverbial pat on the head. You know, that's a good idea, little boy, but we're not going to do anything like that. 
so it was at that time that I realized that if it was going to happen in this area, that I was going to have to be the one to take up the mantle and do it. And so I began looking for an African-American Santa that had a natural white beard, because I was used to working with Santas that had natural beards. And so I continued to look for one until I found one. And that story in and of itself could probably take a good couple of hours. But um, I found one that was walking through the mall. I was photographing Santa on the set. And my coworker tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Stafford, doesn't that guy look like a black Santa? And fortunately, I had my business cards with me. I ran off the set. I said, hey, I'm not trying to be offensive, but if you're interested in being a Santa, next year call me in january and we can discuss it and i said that you know not trying to be offensive because you know a lot of times people think if you're asking them to be a santa you must think they're big and he wasn't a big guy he was about my size and i'm you know i'm a little poorly but i'm not you know <laughs> real big and so uh, he took my card and graciously went on to continue his shopping well january came and went and i did not hear from him so i'm putting a ad in craigslist trying to find a santa and I couldn't find one. So I finally had an event where I'm photographing a wedding in May. So when I first encountered this gentleman, it was in December. And now in May, I'm photographing this wedding. And I, there's only one other black guy at the wedding other than me, and he was a guest. And so, and he looked like a Santa. So I waited a couple of weeks, and I approached the groom, and I said, hey, that guy that looked like Santa that was at your wedding, do you know him? Or was he a guest of a friend? He says, oh, no, I've known him for 20 years. And I told the groom what I was trying to do. He says, look, I'll pass along your information. If he's interested, he'll call you. Well, weeks went by and nothing. So I was, I was getting a little deflated. I was like, oh, man, that guy would have been perfect. And so, you know, I'm thinking the man just got married. He's got a lot going on. You know, maybe he just hadn't, you know, taken the time to call his friend yet. So I called him. And I said, hey, Dave, uh, were you able to get my information to your friend? And he said, yeah, I, I gave it to him. I said, well, he must not be interested because he hasn't called me. He said, no. He said he was interested. So he hung up the phone with me, called his friend. His friend called me, and we finally met. So while I'm sharing with him my vision of a Christian Santa, because I'm thinking, hey, if it was not for Jesus, there would have been a, no St. Nicholas. Santa should be a Christian. He goes into his wallet. He pulls out a business card that I had given him that previous December. So it was the same guy that I approached in the mall that December, which I thought was kind of amazing. Yeah. And have you ever been one of those Santas? Yes, I have been. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually taken several opportunities to be Santa. Now, I don't have a natural beard, not a natural white beard anyway. And so I actually have to be one of those Santas that, you know, has to put on a beard. Um, but that's okay. I gave it my best. <laughs> and the film takes place in a mall in North Carolina and exposes the terrible racism still thriving in this country. So do you think this racism would have taken place elsewhere in the U.S. other than the South? And have you filmed elsewhere? Uh, yes, I think it would have taken place elsewhere. Um, because the phone calls that I get um, spewing their vehemence has been from across the country. Mm. Uh, it hasn't been just from, you know, southern areas. Yeah. Um, so, yes, and I have photographed in other places. I'm, I, we, you know, we also do Virginia, South Carolina. Um, I actually sent a Santa to California last year. Um, so we kind of, you know, we, we go coast to coast, uh, so to speak. And what can you say about these brave men who stood up to the challenge and confrontation and the racism they endured as Sanders? And what do you think gives them that courage? I mean, I think the guys that, that I work with, uh, they, have, they have big hearts. Mm. Um, and so they understand the importance of representation in the minority community, especially during the Christmas season, because, you know, for so long you would think, from looking at Hollywood that black people didn't celebrate Christmas mm -hmm. from the lack of representation. But now, of course, there are a plethora of movies that are out there that are showcasing the fact that, yeah, we celebrate Santa, you know, Christmas as well. And um, so I just think that these guys are courageous because 
this is a stuff that they've dealt with their entire lives. I mean, it's nothing new um, for them, you know, because a lot of the guys that, that that I work with are in their sixties, um, and so they've dealt with being um, sort of the brunt of, of people's angst. And so it's nothing new. It's nothing. Unfortunately, it's nothing out of the ordinary. Um, as far as my own experiences, I have been called, and please forgive me, but I, you know, I don't make any apologies. I use the word. I have been called nigger more in the last eleven years doing Black Santa than I did growing up in the South my entire life. Wow. So it, it's something about touching on, you know, white Santas that just kind of incenses a lot of people. Now, the most terrible, speaking of which, the most terrible part of this film are the racist phone calls, and at one point you're overcome by them. Why did you include those phone calls, and how do you feel they affected you and your resolve to build Santas just like me anyway? Well, I would have to say that the, the documentarian was the one that chose to put the phone calls in. Um, of course, I had to share them with him. Just because I started saving phone calls because I think a lot of people didn't even believe I was telling the truth mm. about the phone calls that I would get. And these phone calls would come at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh. Um, until I learned how to cut my phone off, I would actually answer my phone yeah. um, at those hours. And because I, you know, I have a son, so you always yeah. want to, yeah, as a parent, you're always alert, right? Oh, yeah. And so I, I learned how to separate that business phone from my other phone. <laughs> And so I could get some sleep at night during the season, but these calls were coming, you know, year long. And um, it, it, I think he wanted to include them so people could actually hear um, firsthand some of the the comments that people make. And he didn't even include the most egregious ones. I think he felt that they were just too much to put into the documentary. Um, because I got phone calls that had a lot of sexual references, um, you would just be amazed at some of the things that people um, choose to say out of their mouths. But I think, you know, because it's a phone call and they have an anonymity, you know, they just feel emboldened uh, to be able to just say what's really in their heart. And that's the distressing part, that people actually feel this way. And the part where I was overcome in the film is when I thought about the fact that these some of these were kids that were saying these things. And I'm thinking, we're not going to be able to get rid of the racism because it's perpetuated in families. Yeah. And so it just, it just finds its, its link to go from one generation to the next. So that's, that's the part that I was overcome by, just to think about these are our kids in this great country that think like this. And I would just think after, you know, all these years, you would realize that we're all the same. I mean, our cultures are different, but we're all people, you know. And to me, there's only one race. There's only the human race. And race has been a social construct created to keep us separated. And as long as we're divided, they can conquer us. But if we ever decide to unite as a people, it would be amazing what we can really accomplish um, as, a, as, a, as a people. And how did the phone calls affect you personally? And did at any point did you lose your resolve because of them? No, no, I'm not. I, it's it's not going to cause me to lose my resolve. As a matter of fact, it just strengthens it. Mm. It just makes me want to go and find more Santas to put in more locations because I realize how great the need is. Um, and anytime I come against obstacles like this, it just makes me want to overcome them. I'm a natural salesman, and so, you know, the, the the habit of a salesman is to overcome obstacles, you know, and so that's just part of who I am, what my character is, and I'm just determined um, to always provide what the people need. And so that's how I have this business. And why did you want to, why were you interested in having this film made? Because I think the story needed to be told. Um, you know, Christmas time especially, you know, we can candy coat stuff and, you know, everything is, is unicorn and rainbows, and in reality it's not. There's that seedy underbelly that still exists in our society that even tries to take what good we're trying to do and taint it.
and so I thought that story needed to be told and, and working with Avi Weider, you know, it was a perfect combination to be able to tell that story. Yeah. And do you have a message for people out there, both uh, with your film and organization? A message both for African Americans and their families, and also, on the other hand, for the racists that have attacked you and have attacked these Santas? Well, I'm going to start with the last part of the question first. There, the message to the racist is going to be, we're all the same. Um, and I know that that's simple, but I think if they really grasped and understood it, and I think if most of them did DNA searches, they would probably find out <laughs> that they've got uh, some, some other uh, influences in their bloodline that they had never thought about. And, you know, when it comes back to the brotherhood of man, we're all brothers and sisters. We all were generated from the same two people. Um, and so we're all family. We're all connected that way. And so really racism is just really a bunch of, uh, as the old folks used to say, hooey. Um, it really doesn't make sense when you look at it on its face. Um, for the rest, it's just like, hey, this is the time of the year when we should all be coming together and spreading good cheer. And the thing that w when we did the mall where the documentary was shot, we had all kinds of families coming to see our Santas. We had white families. We had Asian families, Hispanic families. And it did my heart good to see all of those because I didn't know how the experiment was going to go. And there were some people who turned away once they realized it was a black sand and walked out of the line that they had been standing in for 20 minutes. Mm. You know, there were comments that were made that they said loud enough for us to hear. One woman said, you know, we don't like that kind uh, of Santa. You know, so all those things uh, were minimal, though, compared to all the people that came to see. I mean, we saw old white southern men taking pictures with the black Santa. And I, that to me told me that I was doing what I was supposed to do yeah. because I got to see that. And what can people find at your website, santasjustlikeme.com? Uh, they'll just find an array of opportunities to have a Santa at various uh, events during the Christmas season. I mean, we do... Um, you know, parades and tree lightings and home visits. I even found a sleigh during the pandemic because people weren't coming mm. to the events because everybody was scared to death. Yeah. And so I had to figure out a way to still keep the business alive. And so I prayed one day. I said, Lord, I need a sleigh because I figured if I could take the sleigh to people, they could feel comfortable coming outside yeah. and visiting with Santa. And so I found a sleigh in the next county over, brought it. It was an old cutter sleigh from the 1800s, um, sanded it down because it was all black, painted it, you know, Christmas red and trimmed it in gold. And so I started advertising sleigh buys uh. where we would take sand and the sleigh to people. Um, but we do events in various venues. Like, for example, this weekend we're at a, historic home in Raleigh, North Carolina called the Pope House Museum. And the Pope House was the first licensed physician in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, so they have a museum, you know, with his home, with some of the artifacts uh, that he had there. But we're also going to be at Neiman Marcus in Northern Virginia, uh, which is instrumental because they we were the first black Santa in Neiman Marcus in Northern Virginia. I think in any, any Neiman Marcus. But, um, and this is our third year with them. So they've realized the importance of representation and providing that for their clientele. Any last word that you'd like to say to everyone about your organization? Well, one of the things that we decided to do um, this year was to start a nonprofit. So We've uh, started Santa's Just Like Me Too, T-O-O, -O, um, because we knew, and we'd already been doing pro bono work, so that was already a part of who we were, part of our mission statement. But establishing the nonprofit is going to allow us to touch more people who can't afford 
the cost of coming to see uh, a Santa that looks like them at one of our normal events. Plus, we want to be able to provide food and clothing for the families and maybe financial assistance because, you know, this economy has really hit a lot of people hard. And I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the rents are just out of this world. And this is very ridiculous. And so I can imagine in places like New York and California what the rents look like. And so we want to be able to um, pool our resources with like-minded people to be able to bless these families uh, during the Christmas season. Because one of the things we we never want to hear, and I'm thinking about the movie Christmas Vacation, where the little girl comes and says, well, Santa didn't bring us nothing last year. And I don't want to have any of my Santas have to answer the question of Santa, why didn't you bring me anything last year? Um, and so that's part of what we're we're doing as an organization is is like I said, starting the nonprofit so that we can reach more people that way that are underserved in our communities. And they don't have to be black. They could be white, they could be Hispanic, it doesn't really matter. It's whoever the Lord brings into our pathway that we can be a blessing to. That's who we want to bless. Um like for example, I give you uh we got a request from a school in Florida just last night that says, look, we can't afford your normal fees. Can you do it for this amount? And so I called my Florida Santa. I said, hey, this is what they've got. He says, I'm willing to do it for whatever they can give me. Uh, yeah. And that's the heart of the guys that I work with. Great. Okay, well, thank you so much, Stafford Braxton, for calling into our show, and I will get the word out. We really do appreciate that. And I just wanted to also say that um, – the, the nonprofit came out of the the interview we did with National Public Radio last year, as did the documentary. They heard that interview, and there was a woman in California that says, I want to set up your nonprofit wow. at no charge. Wow. Yeah. And she set it up for us at no charge, which I thought was just amazing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Stafford, and good luck this year. Thank you very much, Prairie, for even interviewing me. I appreciate that. Appreciate your time. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. American Santa is being screened on YouTube and coming up next on Arts Express. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express and my name is Brett Gregory. What follows is my review of Cyril Luthi's latest documentary, Goddard Cinema. First, however, let's listen to a news clip from 2022. The Franco-Swiss filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard, one of the fathers of new wave cinema, has died aged 91. In the course of his illustrious career, he garnered 51 awards for his work, including an honorary Oscar, a special Palme d'Or, and two French César d'Honneur. Over a career that spanned seven decades, Godard worked with some of the best actors of his time, ultimately revolutionizing cinema. Cyril Luthi composes his posthumous portrait of one of cinema's great enigmas by entwining with painstaking precision original and archived interviews, film clips, newsreels, epistolary recitations and scripted voiceovers. The conclusive narrative is totally and memorably Goddard, running at 24 frames per second with a clear beginning, middle and end in that order. The narrator reminds us that the late Jean-Luc Godard produced over 140 feature films, documentaries and shorts in his lifetime as a part of his absolute quest for cinema to capture its purity, its humanity, its incredulity and that he sacrificed his psychological, emotional and spiritual well-being at the altar of the seventh art as a consequence. As Godard himself comments, quote, as a boy, I was already in mourning for myself, my one and only companion. And, later in life, quote, 
Does the fact that I make images instead of having children prevent me from being a human being? Born into privilege in Paris in 1930, his father, Paul, was a doctor and his mother, Odile, worked for a bank. The family was fairly intellectual, but, as his father observes, Jean-Luc, quote, always wanted to be a part. He wanted to follow his thought, only his thought. In 1946, he went to study at the Lycée Buffon in Paris and, through his family's connections, mixed with members of the cultural elite. He failed his baccalaureate exam first time around in 1948, but then passed in 1949. He subsequently registered to study anthropology at the prestigious Sorbonne University, but, unsurprisingly, never attended. Quote, When I was at the Sorbonne, Goddard explains in Luthi's film, little by little I became interested by cinema. I discovered film clubs and the Cinémathèque Francais, and I met guys like Truffaut, Rivette, Roma, Chabrol. By 1952, he was writing criticisms for Cahiers de Cinéma, the famous French film journal which fathered the now infamous auteur theory. Here he praised the gloomy romanticism of North American directors such as Nicholas Ray and Howard Hawks, as opposed to the formalistic artfulness of Orson Welles and William Wyler. His mother then died in an accident in 1954, but his family didn't wish for him to attend her funeral. As his sister Veronique explains, quote, making films was not considered in the family line, where you study, you become this or that, but he was considered as a so-called artist. Goddard's creative response to such an opprobrious body blow was to knock the wind out of everybody else in sight with his debut feature film, Breathless, in 1960. A cool and casual iconoclastic collage of pop culture, jump cuts and discontinuity, the French New Wave film starred Jean-Paul Belmondo and Jean Seberg and introduced the subject of Goddard's cinema as cinema itself. And, naturally, cinema adored him in return. Quote, Will Goddard soon be more popular than the Pope? Opined Francois Truffaut, his friend and fellow director. That is to say, just a little less than the Beatles. Fame and adoration were simply not enough for the impish Goddard, however. Quote, I have a taste for paradox and a spirit of contradiction, he wrote. The new wave is criticised for only showing people in bed. So I'm going to show people who are in politics and don't have time to go to bed. Thus he shot and released The Little Soldier, also in 1960, starring his new wife and on-screen icon of the French New Wave, Anna Karina. The film explored the use of torture during the Algerian War of Independence and, consequently, it was banned in France until 1963. Although his commercial successes continued with, for instance, Contempt, starring Brigitte Bardot and Jack Palance, a large, bright aperture had opened itself up within Goddard, and through it he could see that his immediate future lay not simply in the aesthetics of movie-making, but also in its politics. That is to say, in Marx's critiques of the middle class, capitalism, consumerism, and, following the invasion of Vietnam in 1965, North American cultural imperialism. As the actor and historian Christophe Borsella recalls, quote, Goddard arrived one day with a crate of Mao Zedong's little red book, which he had picked up from the Chinese embassy in Paris. David Farol, author of Goddard Inventions of Political Cinema, continues that the director wished to document the political climate in contemporary France by focusing on the radical, quote, Union of Communist, Marxist and Leninist Youth, a new pro-Maoist group very much influenced by the philosopher Louis Althusser. The resultant feature film, The Chinese, loosely based on Dostoevsky's novel Demons, was released in 1967, wherein an isolated group of politicised students are portrayed as, quote, the Swiss family Robinson of Marxism-Leninism, in Goddard's attempt to confront vague ideas with clear images as one social class sets about overthrowing another. The Chinese embassy detested the film, however, describing it as the work of, quote, a reactionary moron. In turn, they said if they had the power, they would forbid it from even being called the Chinese. Goddard was disappointed, of course, but he wasn't dissuaded. 
At the outset of the now legendary student protests and industrial strikes across the Gauls, France in May 1968, Godard, Truffaut and others famously travelled to the Cannes Film Festival to demand the event be delayed. Quote, for the film industry to show solidarity. I'm talking about solidarity with the students and workers, and you're talking to me about tracking shots and close-ups. From 1970 to 1971, Goddard marched alongside the Ziga Vertov Group, a political filmmaking collective which, ironically, sought to erase the notion and influence of the auteur by way of Marx's content and Brechtian forms. Goddard was involved in a serious motorcycle accident in Paris in June 1971, however, and spent a week in a coma. Luthi's narrator comments that not only did this serve as a metaphor for the director's political failings, but also for his rebirth. He met the famed multimedia artist Anne-Marie Milville in 1973, and they were married in 1978. The middle-aged director then entered into a period of exile and experimentation, building the Sonimage studio in his house in Grenoble, where he explored and invented new filmic approaches with the latest videography equipment to, quote, satisfy his fantasy of making movies all by himself. As Henri Langlois, one of the original founders of the Cinémathèque Française in 1936, aptly observes, quote, the last person who made cinema language evolve was Godard. With access to video technology, he would become the new Griffith of cinema. Of course, there is much more for audiences to uncover, experience and learn for themselves from Cyril Luthi's thoughtful and disciplined documentary about one of the key figures in the history of the moving image. Its US premiere is preceded by Jean-Luc Godard's final film project, trailer of a film that will never exist, Phony Wars. In turn, while the digital release of Goddard's cinema across the US won't be until February 2024, UK cinephiles can enjoy the documentary now exclusively on the BFI Player Online. It is highly recommended. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And now on Arts Express... This is Bro on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. And today's episode is the television season of our discontent, streaming and striking in 2023. The year in the TV business can be broken into three parts. The year began following last year's market doubting the profitability of streaming with retrenchment as the studios cut back on both product and labor in an attempt to show solvency and address back debt. On both fronts, these cutbacks amounted to an attack on labor, and in the second and major part of the year, labor struck back, with the writers and actors having had enough of belt-tightening and penny-pinching, joining many other unions in either threatening to strike or striking in what in the U.S. as a whole, and Los Angeles in particular, was a summer of labor discontent that continued into the fall. Through their actions, the workers changed how the story was written, moving it from being a tale of woe about the fate of the studios to one where the studios were culpable for their bloated salaries and failure to reward those actually creating the profit, and one where workers were entitled to part of a still enormously bountiful industry. The third part of the year, the current phase, sees the writers, actors, and directors winning major concessions not only in salary and benefits, but also on controls and limits on the use of artificial intelligence an area unions in many sectors are concerned about, and in having at least proposed the profits and bonuses be tied, as Wall Street is also claiming, to streaming results, with the producers for the first time required to at least give a glimmer of the massive audience data and actual viewer data they so jealously guard. However, as they return to work, the retrenchment continues in this now more open class struggle as the major studios attempt to limit the gains by continuing cutbacks and in some cases potentially folding or selling off assets. Recently, for the first time, a reporter on mainstream media used the term forever wars in querying an administration official about the genocide in Gaza, a sign that the U.S. imperial notion of one just war after another is breaking down. What is becoming apparent in this snapshot of a portion of the entertainment industry is that one of the most enduring of the forever wars is the one waged by U.S. capital against its workers. And that forever war is now being questioned on the domestic front as well. 
A Fool's Errand. The year in the television studio and streaming industry began with a fallout from the previous year's Wall Street attack. Continuing, in March of 2022, the subscriptions of Netflix, the leader in the field, fell, and investors then stopped bankrolling the industry based on the tech bubble model of perpetual growth in the streaming case measured in subscriptions as the indicator of profitability. Instead, stock prices fell as investors demanded immediate results, looking askance at both the lack of profits and the amount of debt on the books for the major streamers. With Disney, for example, Netflix's strongest competitor, losing $1.1 billion in the first quarter, and Warner Brothers' Discovery, now $44.80 billion in debt. The response of the major companies was to cut back on jobs and production, with Disney vowing to get rid of 7,000 jobs and Disney Netflix and what was then HBO Max, all not only cutting back on programming, but also canceling movies and series that were already shot in order to save money on post-production and marketing, as well as paying creators residuals while claiming massive tax write-offs. The strategy was essentially making money by not making product the opposite from the content arms race that had seen the growth of peak TV, where in 2022, 559 series were produced. The most egregious offender in this category was WBD's David Zasloff, who had been tagged to lead the company because of his array of cheap reality TV series on the Discovery Channel, and who brought along with him the Discovery Chief Financial Officer, known for his cost-cutting to supervise the bloodletting, as the order of the day became, turn the cameras off. This went on throughout the industry as so far this year, 119 shows have been canceled or not renewed, among them some of the most expensive, Disney's Willow, Netflix's 1899, and some of the best and most socially responsible series, such as ABC's Alaska Daily, Netflix's The Chair, Hulu's Reboot, and HBO's Black Lady Sketch Show. Taking the cake, though, is WBD's refusal to release Batgirl, a superhero film with a major role for an African-American actress, and the fourth and final season of Academy Award winner Bung Joon-ho's class-conscious environmental apocalypse series Snowpiercer, after both had already been shot. The series is still looking for a broadcast or streaming home. In the midst of this slaughter, Zasloff was called the most hated man in Hollywood, and the creative workers in the industry did not fail to note that he rewarded himself for this penny-pinching by taking a hefty salary raise and that the almost half-billion dollars he earned over five years with the company made him one of the highest-paid executives in America, earning far more than the heads of much larger companies. During the resulting strike, it was noted by struggling writers on the picket lines that his 2021 salary was about the same level as 10,000 writers. Cost-cutting is partly the result of the Wall Street pressure along with the continual decline of cable subscribers as cord cutters became a popular phrase this year, which in turn has led to declining revenue for both cable and network advertisers, who also noted the decline in network audiences due as well to streaming and the competition from social media and gaming. But this debacle is also partly the result of bad and or greedy management something the writers and actors and the general public is aware of, but is seldom touched on in the financial press. Cord cutting, after all, is in reaction to the high price of cable as producers and cable owners collaborate to continually raise prices on increasingly cash-strapped consumers plagued by inflation itself partly brought on by corporate price gouging. Equally, the strategy of cost-cutting to show profit instead of amping up production to attract new audiences is a penny-wise, pound-foolish, short-term strategy that in the long run will cost the companies as they tailor their planning not to audiences, but to their Wall Street stock price. Zasloff has also proved to be tone-deaf to the new, more diverse Hollywood, importing from Discovery, a mostly male management team, and bankrolling as a pet project of film for $45 million, Alto Knights, whose three principal actors are white men in their 80s and 90s. Once more, on to the picket lines. The labor discontent that led to the writers and actors' strikes was part of the larger movement of a besieged American working class that had employed walkouts, strikes, and threats to strike, not only in the entertainment industry, but also in the service industry and in the heart of what was once industrial America. Recently unionized workers in some Starbucks cafes walked off the job to protest understaffing a holiday giveaway. Federal Express workers won huge gains by threatening to strike. Most presciently, the United Auto Workers Union launched a plant-by-plant series of strikes against the top three automakers. The goes-aways 
and many workers thought did not go far enough in recuperating gains lost for years due to accumulated inflation and cost of living increases. In the strikes in Los Angeles, the writers, who had in some way built the city, claimed they could not make enough money because of rising housing costs to live in it. Their plight was acknowledged by an unnamed studio exec who claimed the strategy of the producers in not negotiating was, quote, to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their homes. Workers were also strapped by the Biden administration's raising interest rates as what it claimed was the only way to fight inflation, as opposed to price freezes, thus making it harder and more costly for workers to make housing payments or borrow on credit, and this from the self-proclaimed strongest labor president you've ever had. Neither strike was about making money for the privileged, but rather both were in solidarity with average workers in the field, with the writers campaigning to stop the cuts in the number of writers in a series writing room and the actors winning concessions for background actors. Both strikes also called attention to and called out the huge salaries and extravagant lifestyle of the studio in streaming hits, with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asking in an actor's rally in New York, how many private jets does David Zasloff need? Well, the leaders of sag after described execs as land barons of medieval times. The studios also could not plead poverty, with, for example, Disney's net income for the majority of the strike period jumping 63% and its revenue rising 5% to $21.24 billion. It became clear as offer after offer was not met with a counteroffer, and as the heads of the studios and streamers did not even attend the negotiating sessions until months after both strikes started, that the strategy was to let the strikes go on as a new way of cost-cutting while blaming workers for a steady streaming diet and fall TV season of cheap product that consisted of game shows, reality TV, and reruns. Even the settlement had the air of cheapness, as the producers first signed a contract with the writers, the provisions of which would set the table for the actors, but then waited more than a month to sign with the actors because they were not needed for the production until the writers had time to get scripts ready. In general, newspaper coverage and public opinion was favorable to the strikers, but one glaring but not obvious strike-breaking mantra was Governor Gavin Newsom's oft-repeated soundbite that the strikes were costing the state first five and then six billion dollars in lost revenue around production. The answer to this pressure to settle for a lesser deal was provided by the UAW's Sean Fine, who, when confronted with a similar argument that the strike would cost the car companies too much lost revenue and market position as non-unionized companies moved ahead, instead claimed that all would benefit from a hefty union contract and that the moment a settlement was reached, the UAW would be organizing workers and the non-unionized companies who would want to join when they saw the gains the company was able to secure. In fact, Honda, Toyota, and Hyundai all raised their workers' salaries to approximate the UAW contract. The answer to Newsom's accusation is that the union victories may result in across-the-board raises for workers in California, not net losses. Already in the entertainment industry, next spring we'll see not only the Teamsters, but also below-the-line production personnel, gaffers, camera operators, makeup and set designers, each piggybacking off the writers and actors' gains negotiating a new contract. Meanwhile, urged on by their fellow workers on the picket lines, production workers at Walt Disney Animation and visual effects workers at Marvel voted to unionize, and during the strike, independent producers who are under pressures similar to writers and actors began a conversation about unionizing. A hit, a hit, my kingdom for a hit. There were important gains from both strikes. The writer's strike being the second longest in WGA history and the actors being the longest in SAG after his 90-year history. The Writers Guild claimed it had won concessions amounting to $233 million annually, which included a 12.5% increase in wages over the first year, as well as gains in length of employment, putting restrictions on many rooms of writers and pre-development who were then let go in being paid promptly, in health care for both members of a writing team, and increased residuals for whenever a show is replayed, as well as a share of foreign residuals. It was clear that the writers and actors' strikes went beyond the point where the studios could simply cost-cut and actually threaten the business. The producer's negotiating stance turned from, as one observer commented, macho tough guy stuff, to the point where even the New York Times, which generally remained neutral regarding the strike, conceded that, the moguls capitulated on just about every front. The actors then won a 7% year raise, 
better healthcare funding, compensation on streaming shows and films, and a mandatory minimum number of background actors hired under union compensation. Their chief negotiator, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, talked about the contract and the strike as a very clear signal to other unions because the actors proposed the terms of a negotiation instead of the Producers Association, the AMPTP, proposing and the actors modifying, then accepting the proposal. One of the most crucial questions of both strikes was compensation for creative personnel from streaming, residuals and bonuses for television hits in the older era of Nielsen ratings and syndication were a matter of public information, since both ratings and syndication contracts were announced. Part of the advantage for the producers in the streaming era is that creative personnel have no access to the data and do not know how successful their shows are and how many viewers across the globe are watching them. Both unions won concessions with the producers' bargaining unit, the AMPTP, now pledged to at least share the total number of hours streamed per program that will then be used to compute viewership bonuses for the WGA, said by the union to amount to a 76% jump in these payments. The actors' union SAG-AFTRA went further, demanding 2% of streaming profits, which the producers rejected, though the union, following the WGA, also won a bonus based on streaming film and series performance. Ted Sarandos, the head of Netflix, the most well-off of the streamers, which kept a steady flow of content going and also profit during the strike, with its shares rising 37%, called the actor's demand for a share in streaming profits a bridge too far. Of course, it is the actors and writers who are creating the content that is allowing the former moguls to see themselves as tech barons in the business now of digital distribution, not of content creation. In a parallel enterprise, the National Basketball Association, which could also be said to be part of the entertainment industry, profits between owners and players, who are the actual creators of the content, are shared 50-50. The NBA owners, at least, have stepped across the bridge too far and still have a very profitable enterprise. The SAG after President Fran Drescher acknowledged the defeat, but also the progress made. We're getting the money. We opened a new revenue stream. What matters is that we got into another pocket, she said. The gains... Recorded in putting limits on the use of artificial intelligence may be just as crucial going forward as opening up the question of shared streaming profits. The Biden administration's proposed AI limits hardly discuss at all the use of AI to automate and thus cut jobs. Instead, the mostly voluntary rules focus on national security, AI-distorted images, and data privacy. The task of regulating this threat to employment then has fallen to the individual unions and is an omnipresent concern in recent negotiations, with even the hotel unions in Las Vegas in their new contract, which they used the threat of a strike just before a crucial Formula One racing event to negotiate, putting guardrails on attempts to use robots and AI to pour drinks, check in guests, and clean rooms. The writers won concessions that prevent AI from reducing or eliminating writers and their pay, the most widespread fear being that AI-generated studio and streaming service scripts would then simply have a writer editing or tending the work of the machine. They also won the right to refuse to have their work used to train AI services that could in the future be used to limit their employment. The studios, on the other hand, hung on to the right to use their past scripts to continue to train AI, indicating that they plan to employ the service in the future to try to circumvent writers. The problem here is that while the union won concessions with the studios, there are no such guardrails in place in AI tech companies, free also under the Biden guidelines to loot past creations to enhance the service. The actors won the important right to consent to or forbid the use of synthetic fakes or AI objects, which can fabricate a kind of Frankenstein character based on bringing together well-known features from several actors, though they were criticized for not forbidding this use entirely. The coming attack and maximum profitization of AI is forecast by the reinstallation of Sam Altman, a proponent of no-holds-barred use beyond any ethical consideration, as head of one of the top companies, OpenAI. A French sociologist, head of AI research in Grenoble, described Altman in terms that could now be used to describe the multi-billion dollar industry as a whole, which the Hollywood creatives will have to contend with, as having a vision that is radical, savage, and transhumanist. Exacting a dull revenge. The writers are now back to work, the actors have ratified their contract now, and the Hollywood production wheels are grinding. The class war intentions that were so openly exposed at the time of the strikes, however, have not gone away. The producers are promising more cutbacks in production, claiming the cost of making a show because of the new contracts is now 10% higher. 
One established screenwriter predicts that a lot of careers and even entire companies are going to go away over the next year. And after any strike, there is often punishment meted out by the company to those who are most vocal during the strike. In the area of cost-cutting, for example, the writers want a guarantee of six staff members for a show with 13 or more episodes, so expect the new standard now likely to become 12 episodes to save hiring another writer. As far as the companies themselves, Netflix is still highly profitable, and Amazon and Apple can afford increased costs in their streaming division, which are offset by profits in the main areas of these companies. But Disney Plus, for example, has now announced it is merging its all-family content with Hulu's more adult content and said to be in favor of possibly spinning off its network channel ABC while selling a share of its long-term cable staple ESPN. Peacock, the Comcast streamer, lost $2.8 billion in 2023, and shares of Paramount, the CBS streamer, have dropped 50% since May. One way, then, to enact revenge for the success of the strikes is to simply plead poverty and drastically cut the number of series. As for the company CEOs, as the New York Times suggested, if WBD Zaslov gets in more trouble, there's always the possibility of selling the company with, as everywhere else, Saudi money eager to find new investment opportunities. Disney chief Bob Iger is also fending off criticism from activist stockholder and investor Nelson Peltz, who continues to buy stock in the company in an effort to be named to the board and who is demanding even more than the 7,000 announced job losses, many of them already implemented. Only in the business press would someone who is screaming for sacking more employees after a year of firings be called an activist. It's this kind of phony activism that last summer, and now back on the job, the writers and actors continue to counter, though, through their own genuine activism in favor of a more equitable industry and country. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.